Okay. Okay. Should we start? Yeah. Okay. Let's start. All right. Welcome to TV Saves the World. I am Elam. I am super drunk. This room is great. I'm Priya, and I am high and also drunk. Today, we will be talking about B-level science fiction. Uh, yeah, so we can start by saying, what is... What is B-level science fiction and why do we love it? And then we'll uh, talk about some of our favorite shows that are B-level that we love and some of our least favorite shows that are like <laughs> amazing prestige shows that uh, watching is kind of like pulling teeth. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what we mean. We really hate them because they suck. <laughs> and we'll be discussing why that is. Today on E. Kate and Priya talk about things. Ah! All right. So, uh, are we starting with what is B level sci-fi? Yeah. So, what is B level sci-fi? What are some random things we can just throw out? Random things that make them good. Mm-hmm. So, I think B level sci-fi tends to be um, sort of lower budget and um, sort of off the cuff. There's a lot more, um, it aims for a much smaller audience that is perhaps somewhat more dedicated. Mm-hmm. And uh, it doesn't really take itself very seriously. You're not going to see reviews of, you know, Killjoys and Stargate SG-1, spoilers for today's episode in the New York Times. <laughs> yep. Sad but true. Um, Priya, why do you like B-level sci-fi? Yeah. So... Yeah, at some point I realized that all of my, like, favorite sci-fi shows were Canadian sci-fi TV shows. Go Canada! Uh, and <laughs> and uh, I had, and a large part of it, I think, is because, like, the Canadian TV production really has down this style of, like, being very grounded and human, while at the same time um, being silly enough to take seriously the idea of, like, all these different, like somewhat initially strange sounding like science fiction premises and um you know by doing that i think it it ends up saying actually something very profound about the human condition this is when you can tell that i'm very high by the way Mm. (laughs) Mm. yeah i think it (laughs) it is profound and we can cut this part (laughs) i think it ends up saying something actually surprisingly profound about the human condition that um that we can that we it's that we have this ability to relax the rules about ourselves uh, enough to like seriously imagine what it would be like to be in these different worlds um, and seriously imagine in the sense of like you know taking the full complexity of a human being uh, which is different than like um, you know the broad strokes of how they may act and saying like okay you know um, and saying, like, what is it really like to be that kind of a person? And I think that's part of why it tends not to take itself so seriously. Right. Because, like, being a real person is, like, real people laugh, you know? There's, like, humor <laughs> in the real world. <laughs> we, uh, we keep trying not to laugh on this podcast, and we're failing. And we're going to edit most of the laughs out, but uh, you're probably going to get some of them here. Sorry, Sorry. guys. <laughs> we're, like, having a great time. We hope you're also having a great time. <laughs> so speaking of things we were into in middle school, Priya, 
I heard there was this show and there was something with gates, stars, I don't know. <laughs> there was some dude with an eye in his head. You want to tell us about Stargate as G1? Stargate SG-1 uh, was, uh, you, you, you've all probably vaguely heard of it. So many of you have probably heard of the Stargate movie, um, which starred uh, James Spader and Kurt Russell. And I used to love Kurt Russell. I mean, actually, he's pretty good in it. And like James Spader actually is very good in oh. it. Um, and actually, I always kind of, you know, it was interesting when I was rewatching Stargate as an adult because I realized that like Michael Shanks as... Um, as Daniel is actually not as good as James Spader as Daniel in a way that's kind of sad. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> the point is that there was this TV show starring Richard Dean Anderson, um, and uh, it was on the Siffy channel, and I. Uh, it was, and so it was the adventures of the Stargate team um, that formed in the U.S. military after um, they discovered the Stargate. Right, right, right. Um, and went back to, uh, I mean, they start off by going back to Abydos. They, like, find all these different addresses. And then the TV show is them going to different um, gate addresses, a.k.a. planets, yeah. usually, uh, every episode. And so it's just kind of this science fiction procedural, yeah. um, a bit like Star Trek. Mm. Uh, but it has actually, I think, a very different and and surprisingly much more humanistic tone. I mean, Star Trek is already a very humanistic series. Well, um, for, for one thing, it has uh, Commander Carter, who is an actual character that does stuff. Yes. Uh, so Sam Carter, uh, I think, it, like, initially starts off, she gets a very, very rough intro episode early in the series, but then grows into, I think, just one of the best hands-down best female characters uh, ever on television. Um, and, uh, you know, I think a large part of why that is is because the show, like, is grounded in humor enough that it's able to, you know, it doesn't feel like it has to shoehorn her into this specific yeah. role. It can kind of just let her be, you know, whoever she is. And so I think that sort of brings us to the thing of, you know, what are what are things that, that you love about Stargate SG-1? That, that, that are there partly because it's a B-level show that would not have been there if it was a prestige TV. Yeah, so uh, then the my other big thing um, besides Sam Carter is the character of Teal'c, uh, who, of course, is the um, enemy commander uh, for the Gould Apophis, mm -hmm. who SG-1, he helps SG-1 escape uh, in the uh, escape Apophis in the first episode. And then he's kind of like, ah, I, you know, just betrayed my god. Uh, can I, like... Awkward? Yeah, awkward. Uh, you know, like, will you guys, like, help me out? And they're like, yeah, we'll do you a solid dude. Whatevs. Cool, cool. Good um, dudes. Yeah, bros. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, is actually... And, and when you really, you know, as a kid, I was just like, oh, this is super cool. Uh, you know, I just thought it was fun, because he's a really fun character. And then, um, and I actually learned how to raise one of my eyebrows just so <laughs> I could imitate him. <laughs> wait, wait, can I see it? Indeed. <laughs> None of you can see it, but it's real. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um... Uh, but, you know, what struck me when I watched him as an adult is, like, Teal over the course of the series, and particularly at the beginning, like, he's taken in, actually, basically in good faith, 
you know, like, in an A-level show, it would be, like, oh, he's definitely going to, like, the black site for, like, a few months yeah. first. Um, but in SG-1, they're just, like, yeah, right, uh, you know, we'll give you some food and stuff, I guess. Yeah. You know, you probably shouldn't go in the hallways. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how would, how would Stargate SG-1 have been different? If it was prestige TV, Stargate, SG-1, made in 2019. You know, I think the big difference is that there would have been a huge... um, There would have been a huge uh, season, at least season-long arc about Teal'c feeling conflicted between Apophis and, like, Earth. Or, like, finding finding some way to have Teal'c, like, accidentally leak info... Or even on purpose leak info and then feel guilty or whatever. Because it would be sloppy of the TV writers to just have him be one of the good guys. Right. In an A-level show, that would be considered sloppy. But in the B-level show, it's like, no, like, actually there are some cases in real life where you're just like, fuck that guy. And it's and it's the and, premise, right? Like, yeah. it's a much more interesting premise of he's one of the good guys now than, oh yeah. no, what if he's evil just like you would think that he is? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's a way more interesting premise, and I, it, and it makes him a really interesting character. Um, yeah, and like another thing that stood out to me is like he's really believed. So like when he yeah. tells them like you know Apophis like will think X Y and Z and will be on like this planet, the people in charge are like, great, go to that planet. <laughs> like there's no like, can we trust him? Like psh, 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 psh. it's just like no, you know the man said it, go fucking do it. It's, um, uh, it's competence porn, right? Everybody trusts each other. Yeah, and I think that's the thing I really realized is, like, SG-1, and I think maybe that's what doesn't fly in an A-level show, right. I don't know, but, like, SG-1 really watching it is, like, it's just, it hits all these beats of, like, this is an experienced team with, like, established characters who have all organically found a way to work with each yeah. other, and really get something done at the end of the day without, like, feeling too upset about it. Um, and it's really, but it's also really a serious examination of like, what does that take? Like what kind of strength of character does that take? Um, you know, what kind of ability, what kind of self-awareness does that take? Like what kind of ability to cope does that take? Um, yeah. So anyway, it's not harder to work with people who are different than you, especially when one of them is a weird uh, guy with a worm in his head. Technically, the worm is in his stomach, but yes. Shit. (laughs) But he has a thing in his head, right? Yeah, he has a thing on his head. Oh, okay, yes. The point is, it's harder, but it's a much more interesting show for them trying to do it and succeeding than it would be if they were just failing all over the place, like you'd expect in a dramatic television. 2019! (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then I think the last thing that's really great about SG-1... which is very different, which I think is the big thing that separates it from Star Trek, which yeah. otherwise would be very similar, um, is that there are a lot of times in SG-1 where the humans are not the right, are not in the right. Yeah. Uh, like, there's a lot of times where, like, uh, in, in Season 1, Episode 7, The Knox, I actually wrote in my review that, like, the whole thing that, um, like, the whole point of The Knox really is to be like, listen... Yes, humans are great, but there is still more that's greater out there. And it accomplishes it in a very effective way. Um, And it really gives you this sense of, like, awe and, like, wonder that you don't even... I don't think you really get in Star Trek, to be honest. Well, in in Star Trek, the Federation is one of the major powers of the galaxy. It was a Cold War show, and in Stargate, it's not that. It's your, you know, travelers that have stumbled onto an alien way to go to new and exciting places, but you're just as out of your depth as you'd expect. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. But also, you're able to cope with it, basically, yeah. as you would expect. It's the confidence you know? born. Yeah, exactly. So, um, I don't know. At the end of the day, I find something... I feel like it's a very hopeful and uplifting show. It's true. Um, even when the characters fail or make like major mistakes, as, as sometimes happens. Um, but uh, at the end of the day... Um, I don't know. I feel like it has this kind of very enduring, timeless quality as a result. I think that's true. I know people are going through Stargate and, uh, you know, even even now, and they're all going through Stargate SG-1. No one remembers uh, Stargate Atlantis. Like, remember that? I remember the first two seasons. I, I remember that it was there. <laughs> um, mm. But I tried to take this more serious, dramatic approach where everybody on the crew hated each other and there was all this internal drama and I mean that's just it's just really hard to pull off and they couldn't do it mm-hmm. it's boring as fuck <laughs> so uh Ike, let me ask yeah. you about one of your favorite and yeah. favorite shows so what I love about B-level sci-fi is that it pushes the envelope it has to because um, people aren't gonna, you know, you don't expect people to watch it for the acting, you don't expect people to watch it for the special effects. So the only reason you would expect people to watch it is because it can give them something that nobody else on television is able to give them at the time. And on the other hand, because your budget is kind of low, you're able to take that risk because, like, what's the worst thing that happens is, like, well, your show gets cancelled. But everyone expects your show to get cancelled because, like, whatever, it's a fly-by-night side project. It's not super serious. Um, and so my favorite show of 2019 is Killjoys. And the plot of Killjoys is that... Um, there is, uh, I've, I've heard this, is that um, Dutch is a woman, she's a woman of color actually, who was trained from her childhood to be an assassin, has assassinated her uh, husband-to-be. It was an arranged marriage, so that's fine. <laughs> um, yes, that totally merits death. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on. Um, and now she and her best friend Johnny are uh, mercenaries working for this mercenary organization that tries to stay political, and then Johnny's brother joins them, and he and Dutch strike up a romance, but really it's like the three of them, and they're like the best friends, and they deal with a lot of weird political stuff, and then her sister shows up, her twin sister, who is also her mother, you know, it's much better than I'm making it sound. (laughs) It's also, it's like, it's just like a really bonkers space western. Oh, yeah. And like many original westerns, actually, uh, one of its strengths is that it has a really coherent um, conversation about labor. Uh, in terms of, you know, what does, what does it mean? Uh, one of the plots of the first couple of seasons is that um, they live in, the, in this quadrant and there are four planets and one of them is weird. And one of them is the planet of the hyper-rich. And then there's sort of this agricultural planet. And there's the shitty industrial planet where all the action takes place. And the main part of the first season is that everyone on the shitty industrial planet was promised land on the agricultural planet by the ultra-rich planet seven generations later. Well, it's been seven generations, and the agricultural planet is not particularly excited about all these uh, refugees pouring in, and the ultra-rich aren't really excited about having to pay up. It turns out they were never planning to pay up for unrelated weird space reasons. This definitely is not a commentary on colonialism. (laughs) 
yeah. anyway. <laughs> and um, the uh, the industrial planet is like in the process of having an uprising um, led by sexy BDSM monks. <laughs> Because you can do that in B-level science fiction. <laughs> sexy BDSM monks, guys. Yeah, they actually are surprisingly sexy. They're really hot. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, what it, but it sort of keeps going from there. Um, there is their entire plot lines about the fact that the ultra rich uh, don't don't you know they don't just gestate their own kids. They've used their influence to get uh, a bunch of people on the agricultural planet to. To agree that their highest calling in life is to be surrogates for the ultra rich, because um, it's a show that acknowledges that um, child rearing and childbirth is labor. Holy crap! I actually never put that together until you said it just now. Um, about uh, this is Zeph's family, right? Uh, it's it's partly Zeph's family, and it's partly there's like another plot arc about it earlier in the show okay i wasn't sure how to remember and um and then you know later they end up on a colony that is a penal colony where everybody's forced to grow organs yeah yeah i remember that one because that is also labor um and then uh you can see it sort of carried through because one of the fundamental relationships is um is this really adorable lesbian relationship between um say a kendry who is one of this sort of merciless ultra rich and Anila, who is uh, the protagonist's immortal uh, twin sister slash mother. Um, <laughs> but one of the things that happens in that relationship is that it's really, you know, that they love each other because of their relationship to power and how much they both love power. And uh, one of the things that happens is that Kendry uh, carries Anila's child. And that is, I think that's very intentional be- that Kendry is the one to do it because Kendry is clearly the subservient one in that relationship where she's the one, I love Anila because she's an immortal with all of this power and that is the sexiest thing in the world for me. Mm-hmm. And so I love you, babe. And Anila is like, cool, you love me and you're not crazy. This is amazing. <laughs> I love you too. Let's be together forever. Um, and then they are, which is something you're not going to see on prestige television because, I mean, why would prestige television let two evil lesbians rule the galaxy in peace? <laughs> <laughs> but you can do that on Killjoys, and you know it's an unorthodox pairing. If you, um, even if they weren't lesbians, it would still be adorable, and it's even more adorable because you know they are. And uh, as a queer person, I found that really, really wonderful and really cheerful, and not something that I was likely to find anywhere else on television, or in pre- especially in sort of A level shows aiming for a broad audience that might you know consider that this is crazy. Um, because it is. Also, for those of you who have seen Legend of Korra, uh, actually, Anila Kendry is very similar to Korra Sami in Legend of Korra, um, which I think has very interesting parallels in many ways, but I'm going to stay on topic. Yeah, yeah, I haven't seen about that. Them. Um, and so, yeah, and so I like Killjoys. Um, it's super socialist. It has, you know, weird sort of blended families idea. There is not, there is not really any tension over the fact that, like, um, Dutch is, you know, best friends with Johnny and it's like, you know, having sex with his brother on and off. It's complicated. Um, this is, this is kind of seen as, oh yeah, sure. I mean, they're, they're all friends. Like, and that, that is much more similar to how for a lot of us, you know, friendships work. We, we, at this point, we expect to stay friends with our exes. We expect to be friends with each other and not have this, this weird tension everywhere. Um, and um, the last thing I wanted to add is um, it's also fairly diverse. It has multiple um, relationships that are queer. 
Um, I think most characters are assumed to be bisexual at various points. Um, but even if they're not, you know, there is, um, as mentioned, Anilin Kendry. There is a plot arc about how the sassy gay bartender is a warlord who then starts dating one of the customers in his bar, who's this really gruff guy, but he's, he's the nice one. Um, and it's so cute, and I was so happy that it worked out for them. Um, and it has a lot of characters of color because, you know, it's this weird Canadian show, and they just hired the best actors, and they could do that, and it was great, and it's amazing, and it is much closer to reflecting the way our world, eat, our world is. And then Hannah John came in, who plays Dutch, got started yeah. on there, and then she was an Ant-Man. Oh, nice. I, I mean, the Ant-Man too. Yeah. I don't know how sequels work in terms of the, like, uh, status bump that you get. I want to see her in everything. Yeah, actually, she was very good in it. She's very good on Killjoys. I want to see her in everything. She plays yeah. two characters in Killjoys, and one of them is insane and immoral, and one of them is reasonable, <laughs> and... Not quite immortal. Yeah, no, no. She's the only thing that makes Ant-Man 2 worth watching, I think. All right, all right. I'll, I'll watch it for her. <laughs> um, but I guess, you know, my point is, B-level science fiction. If you want to see what the future ought to look like, if you want to see what the future of science fiction ought to look like, you're much better off watching Killjoys than, like, I don't know, Handmaid's Tale. I mean, come on. Oh, man. <laughs> um... I think we're moving on to the part of the podcast where we talk shit about a prestige level shows. Yes. <laughs> Stay tuned. Can we take a break, please? Okay. And we're back. Beep, beep, beep. So, Priya. I hear there's some prestige television airing right now that you have strong opinions on. Perhaps it takes place in Tulsa, Oklahoma. (laughs) Would you like to tell us more? Uh, The prestige television that I have strong opinions on is Watchmen. Soon all the whores and race traitors will shout save us. And we will whisper, how? We are the 7th Cavalry. We are no one, we are everyone, we are invisible. So, Watchmen, I think, is really interesting. So, um, the, so, so Watchmen, the premise of Watchmen is, um, it, it's based on the comics Watchmen, it's technically an adaptation, but it's set um, in the modern day, whereas the comics are set in the 80s. Um, so it's been 30 years, uh, really almost 35 years now, since... Um, the events uh, of of actual Watchmen, which, spoiler alert, ends with a giant squid dropping on Manhattan and killing a whole bunch of people and traumatizing a whole bunch of people um, and just being, like, really... Um, and just, like, the kind of effect that that had yeah. on the world, uh, as well as Dr. Manhattan winning uh, Vietnam for the U.S. Uh, Dr. Manhattan is a weird demigod person that steps into an atom reactor and then has power over matter and he can <laughs> manifest six hands to have sex, which for some reason is a problem instead of a feature. I know. What the fuck? What the fuck was that? That's when you could tell Watchmen was written by a man. <laughs> Probably a straight one. Come on. <laughs> so... Um, yeah, and also, weirdly, so this, I think, is a very good A-level, B-level comparison. Um, so, weirdly, in Watchmen, um, the, uh, weirdly, in the comic, 
um, Dr. Manhattan is having sex with, like, a 17-year-old. Uh, and, like, it's because she just happened to have a crush on him when she was, like, 14. Was this okay in the 80s? Uh, I don't think it was ever really that okay. Uh, so... Anyway, mm. so it's extremely weird and like very clearly, again, you can tell Watchmen was written by a man. Um, but she kisses him twice, so you know that means she's older than she seems at heart mm-hmm. and very mature. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and so, one of the great things about uh, the new Watchmen is that we one of the protagonists is older Laurie Blake, who's now um older by I guess thirty five years yeah. in fact, and uh is pretty bitter about this whole thing. Uh and I really love that it kind of sets up this dynamic of you get the sense that you're seeing the other side of the story, like the other side of that like male power ingenue like fantasy is this like really amazing, intelligent um, you know, beautiful, like, sarcastic mm-hmm. woman yeah. at the other end who's just, like, hyper-competent and, like, knows her shit and is, like, a really amazing and preferable in every way. That's true. Uh, and um, so it's kind of, so it kind of has that sense, so it kind of takes that sense of, like, the B-level sense of, like, this is the aftermath, but it applies this very weird A-level filter yeah. to it. Um, and, like, one of the things that you actually pointed out is that it's really weird that Laurie and Angela Abar, the other main protagonist, aren't friends on the show. They're both really competent, really powerful career women. And you would expect that, especially, you know, working in a male-dominated industry like they do, you would expect in real life there'd be somewhat more of a camaraderie among them. But that wouldn't be very interesting dramatically. And so instead, they, they hate each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like uh, similarly, um, similarly, uh, uh, oh god, this news is really hitting me. Um, oh, sorry. No, 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 it's okay. I haven't even had any of this champagne. Just drink it from the bottle. It's fine. <laughs> Since you have the blue stuff in your glass, that's the only solution. <laughs> um, what were we? What were we talking about? Watchmen. Uh, and. Laurie and Angela, right, and they're not friends. Yeah. Yeah, and, like, it would make sense for them to be friends. And, in fact, like, there's a point where, um, the point where Laurie captures Angela, where she finds out that Angela's been covering it up. Like, the thing that Angela's really been covering up is that she literally just discovered that she has a hundred-year-old grandfather in a wheelchair who claims to have killed, like, this 50-year-old police chief. Uh... It just, it really genuinely doesn't make sense. And, like, in a B-level show, like, I think what they would do is say, oh, you expect Lori to go in there guns blazing. But then when she hears this, like, crazy story, she's like, okay, whoa. Like, let's let's slow down and, like, let's be friends. I think we have some things in common here. Let's talk about this. Yeah. Um, But in the A-level show, it goes with a more simplistic narrative of, like, ah, she's, you know, got her. Yeah. You know, this is it. She's made an arrest. She's done. Like... Really? Which I think kind of comes from the idea of A-level shows trying to resist giving you what you want, which is for these characters to come to some sort of agreement. But you want that because that's more realistic almost and more satisfying, certainly. Yeah. Yeah, I certainly think so. Um, and instead, I think they want to, you know, almost complicate it. So what's, uh, what's another example of something that uh, the Watchmen tries to complicate that, like, probably isn't that complicated, actually? <laughs> so, Watchmen also, um, in the second to latest episode, 
um, had it was an episode where Angela relived her grandfather's life um, using this in-universe um, like drug called nostalgia that lets you relive people's memories. Um, whoa. Yeah, it's kind of whoa, right? I, I want that. <laughs> um, and uh, it's so funny because they're like, ah, oh, it was outlawed because people were addicts. It's like, there's no way you could outlaw that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Who would be addicted to their parents' memories? No, but also, like, once you have that, that's such valuable information. That's true. Like, there's, once it's invented, there's no way you are ever going to not have it on the market. That's like years of therapy off. off yeah. The <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, so Angela um, takes all of her grandfather's memories at once, so she relives his whole life. And you kind of see, spoiler alert, um, you kind of see his progression from being this kid who survived the Tulsa, Oklahoma bombing of Black Wall Street... Um, and then grew up into this police officer. He's trying to seek justice in New York City, but it turns out the whole police force, of course, is white supremacists. They have this weird hand sign um, uh-huh. called Cyclops, um, and uh, he realizes very quickly that he's just being used as like a black token, basically, on the force, and obviously he's very upset about it, and so he becomes the first superhero because Whoa. what happens is his wife's his white um, fellow white police officers lynch him. Holy shit! Basically. And then, but like just let up at the last minute because they just don't actually want to kill him yet because it it would clearly be like too much paperwork or something. Oh my God. So they're just like, all right, look, we just won't kill you right now, but just like stay quiet. You you should know we can lynch you at any time. Exactly. It's horrible. That's kind of why we prosecute hate crimes, right? It's because it's not just the crime, it's the message. Yeah. And so like... So it's just absolutely horrible. And so then he becomes a superhero because he just gets up with, like, this hood and this robe. Yeah. And um, he becomes hooded justice. uh, And he, like, goes... And and it makes so much sense. And it's so amazing because it, again, feels like that B-level answer, you know, to Watchmen. Yeah. Like, is is kind of A-level asking... um, you know, what really is the point of superheroes? Like, who are these crazy people who, like... Oh, God, that's very ableist. Like, who are these people who... I just who somehow who for whatever reason are driven to um, do this very weird thing, which is which is really weird when you think about it. Um, and uh, but Watchmen kind of, but then the new Watchmen points out there is actually a very good reason for it sometimes, which is that sometimes the world is legitimately that like terrible, right? Uh, and sometimes it really is the best case to get justice. And, like, your case for that is is genuinely unassailable. Uh, and so... And so, uh, it's this... Ama- and so, the episode kind of goes through this whole arc where, like... And there's this point where, like, he has to stop um, just, you know, wounding Klansmen and start yeah. killing them once he, like, really right. re- understands the full extent of their plan, which is, like, mind-controlling black people to kill each other and start riots and stuff. Uh, oh my god, yeah. Yeah. Fuck that. And so it's, and so, like, for me watching it, I was like, oh, actually, this is kind of a high point, like, for once I can, like, really root yeah. for a, a character's death in an uncomplicated way, which is not something I can do most of the time. So I was like, all right, you know, this seems fine. Um... And but then I read on Twitter that Damon Lindelof, uh, the showrunner, had said in an interview that like this was the low point for the character, what? where he like you know became irredeemable because he began like killing his enemies. And I was like, and and, and I and most of the 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 people of color Twitter threads I read were like, um, like scratch your head, yeah, <laughs> scratch your chin, like 
No, that that doesn't actually compute here. There's there's nothing irredeemable about killing clansmen who are trying to lynch you. Yeah, that's basically self defense. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, like, he had the proof. He was literally anyway. So, like, like, and I think another interesting thing that goes along with this is that Noah Berlatsky, um, who's a great critic that I follow on yeah. Twitter, um, posted this article about Watchmen and the problem of the black police officer. Yeah, I saw that. Um, it's a good article. Well, the thing is that the thing I found interesting is that uh, I absolutely agree with the whole trope of that he lays out of the black police officer and the way that it's used in um, these kinds of shows as a way to like you know normalize um, like get you to accept yeah. like police brutality. But I actually think, but I think it's interesting that he's saying that about Watchmen, New Watchmen specifically, because I think New Watchmen specifically is trying to undermine that trope yeah. and say like no, actually there could be a world in which that is okay, like, for example, the world in which we actually even pretend to take the KKK seriously um, and, like, do the, like, right thing about it. I mean, that'd be a good world, but it's also saying the world of the Watchmen is not that world. It's the world where the um, the new KKK, the neo-KKK, as you, as, as you one would say, is, is, is run by a senator who is in cahoots with the chief of police about working together to make sure that none of them is prosecuted too harshly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, anyway, um, yeah. So um, yeah. So Watchmen. Um, yeah, not great. Not not great on some things. Great on others. Really, really kind of prestige TV, and the prestige yeah. parts aren't working so well. It sounds like. Anyway, we should get on to the Handmaid's Tale. I mean, Ekit, what is your, <laughs> what is your show, that uh, you really love to rant about right now? Oh my God! So. I talked about labor issues in Killjoys and how Killjoys uh, talks about reproductive rights and how it wants to acknowledge that childbearing is is a form of labor. I mean, it's literally in the word. And how it talks about, you know, the sort of gender issues that come into play when you deal with that and how it talks about queer sexuality and all these things that give beauty and color to my world here in San Francisco. And um, there's another show on television right now that uh, makes a really big point of talking about um, labor in terms of giving birth and feminism. And um, it is an A-list show that is reviewed in all of the major outlets. It is based on a book that is a timeless classic by an author who has multiple times said that she does not write science fiction. Um, I think we all know that I am talking about The Handmaid's Tale. Um, and I, you know, I watched a couple of episodes. It's actually really hard to watch because uh, the thing about The Handmaid's Tale is that 90% of it, as far as I can tell, is Elizabeth Moss staring very sadly into the camera, being like, did you know that rape is traumatic? Did you know that, Priya? I did know that. Do you, do you want Elizabeth Moss to stare at you with big traumatized eyes to let you know about that? I mean, maybe for like a little while, like one season. But then, not after that, no. And then, like, three seasons. I think in the latest season, they uh, sew someone's mouth shut to show you that um, patriarchy is bad. Ugh, that's so gross. 
I, I guess I kind of I feel like right. we already knew patriarchy was bad. I mean, we should show that patriarchy is bad, but we can find maybe less gross ways to show it. But I'm, yeah, exactly. And also, I mean, here's the thing, right? It's a show that's, um, it's trying to make a point that, you know, patriarchy is bad, feminism is good, but it can never make a point that's actually contentious because they spend so much money per episode that they can't really afford <laughs> to alienate anybody in their audience. Uh, which means the closest you get to a political statement that's actually applicable that the show makes is separating mothers from their children by force is not great. <laughs> which I guess is a political statement in 2019, but like <laughs> everyone agrees that it isn't great. <laughs> Nobody is like, you know what's great? I think like taking this woman's child and getting it to be raised by some other family. And instead, she should be serially raped. That's that's the A level outcome. Nobody thinks that. Um, and I mean, you know, I mean, nobody nobody thinks that like, oh, we should you know class divide our planets by income is a great idea either. But at least Killjoys is funny, while while it goes around it. Well, I think the question here is maybe like the idea. I think there's a question here of like our perception of how often each of these things occur. Like we've mm. all like we we know that every single society on Earth involves um like some kind of classification by income basically like once sure. you get past like the hunter-gatherer stage um whereas we're not clear that every single society yeah. on earth involves like systemic rape um which most don't actually which, uh which is an interesting thing because like there are definitely like, there are definitely arguments to be made that there are cases of systemic rape, and I don't think anyone would argue that. Oh, sure. Um, but, like, it's kind of, it's this question of, like, is it significant that, the hum- that humanity is capable of this, or is it more significant that most of the time it's really not actually worth the trouble to do it? Uh, uh, and, and honestly, most of the time it actually doesn't, like most of the time you can argue that it does not happen to most people well i mean in most societies um you'll be much more successful in brainwashing everybody involved to be okay with it uh the most interesting parts of the handmaid's tale would be the ones that deal with children that are already raised in gilead that are raised to be on board with this crazy idea i'm sorry to be ableist again uh with this idea of this terrible world that they live in Mm -hmm. but um I mean, the, the show has to sort of shy away from that because to show that would be um, kind of unsympathetic and horrifying and it would need to be to have a lot of levity about it. And you see some of that on Killjoys when one of the protagonists is a genius scientist who has to go back to her weird, like, um, you know, um, reproduction-oriented cult that she grew up in that doesn't believe in technology and throws her into a pit all the time. Uh, but it's a lot easier to do that in a sort of lighter setting and it's a lot easier to do that when you're not responsible for millions of dollars in uh in in money spent per episode Mm -hmm. everything has to matter and then it just it's just so weird (laughs) it's it's so boring um and i mean i just want to point this out um you know um on a b-level show uh nobody's gonna watch a b-level show if all your queer characters die because so much of your viewership is likely to be young people or queer people or just people who are, you know, watching it to get fun. And mm-hmm. if they're not having that, they're going to stop. But on Handmaid's Tale, I mean, 
uh, how how are the lesbian characters on that show doing? I mean, I think one of them has successfully escaped to be exiled in Canada and be really full of PTSD and unwilling to let any other women touch her. And the other one has had terrible things done to her body and all of the lovers are dead. So that's really not a win for the, you know, avoiding the dead bury your gaze trope, as it were. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can, you know, you can get away with that a prestige show, ironically enough, because it's for serious people and most serious people are straight. Um, and you're less likely to get to actually do that on a B-level show, because once you do that, no one's going to watch your stupid ass show, because fuck that shit. Yep. Um, and speaking of most of your serious viewers, Priya, how do you think The Handmaid's Tale deals with the issue of race? Uh, Handmaid's Tale on the issue of race. I mean, it's just very white feministy. Uh, like, it, it, it deals with race by ignoring it, right? And ignoring it in these very strategic ways of, like, you know, her best friend is from before was black and, like, her husband was black. Um, and, you know, her child is mixed. And, you know, that's great. Like, that goes some way. Yeah. Um... It's also, it, it also, at this point, it feels very rote, um, and uh, that's something that, uh, you know, it, it feels very rote in this way that, like, I don't quite know how to qualify it, I guess. I mean, the issue of that kind of subjugation is going to be very different if you're not white. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like, it's acknowledging it, but it's acknowledging it so formally that it doesn't feel like an acknowledgement. Right. Uh, it's trying to walk as quickly as possible away from this issue and hope nobody notices. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So to me, the show is basically just boring. Uh, <laughs> like, I, I just watched the first season, and then I watched, like, season two, episode one, and I was like, that's enough. I don't need to watch any further. <laughs> I got it. <laughs> I, I, I just keep trying to watch it, and uh, it's Elizabeth Moss staring into the screen being like, rape is bad. And, bro, I got that. <laughs> I, think, I think we're all on board with this message now. So, like, what are we going to do next? And it turns out what we're going to do next is, like, you know, betray some people to their deaths because they weren't going along with the concept. Uh-huh. So that's cool, but I don't know. I'm missing some subtlety there, I guess. Yeah. I mean, I think maybe also there's an argument to be made that it's, like, rape is bad and also brainwashing is bad. But, um... But none of the main characters are brainwashed. I mean, the closest you get to someone like that is Selena Joy, and then what we get is like, oh, maybe she and Selena Joy are gonna be friends, and like, how how is that a thing? So I think maybe also there's supposed to be this sense of like the many against the the few, but to me it's so. I'm not saying that the like obviously this has happened before, right? Right, like um, like if you think about um. Uh, if you think about like um, like labor camps, for example, right. you know, like there are certainly like contained areas where this has happened many, many times in human history. For sure. But I think it, it's it's significant that those are always in contained areas for a reason because those are genuinely extreme environments where people have to feel a, a genuine sense of hopelessness about running away for from sure. the problem. Whereas in the ha- and in the Handmaid's Tale, like okay, they've structured society somehow so that people will like people do mostly feel hopeless about it yeah but it's also not exactly a contained area like it kind of is it's pretty hard to run away to canada in theory yeah i guess but it also seems like there's um 
Well, I don't know. I guess to me, like, it was always a little suspicious in the book how easily, how easy it was for her to, like, get kidnapped to, like, get to freedom. Oh, yeah. And and, I mean, not that it didn't work for the book. It makes sense for the book, which I think is really great in terms of, like, a self-contained thing. Mm -hmm. And so, like, another huge problem with The Handmaid's Tale is it just ran out of book material, and then it had nothing else to say. (laughs) That that might actually be the problem, yes. Uh, Much like another series that we will not name. (laughs) Dragons. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, that's just my non-opinion on it. Yeah, it's a pretty, pretty good opinion. <laughs> um, okay. How would how would how would Handmaid's Tale be different if it was a B-level B-level sci-fi show? What would you do differently, Priya? What would I do differently? Um, what would I do differently? If it were, or what would it be different if it were B level? I think there would be more, there would definitely be more organization between the women. Like there would be a much more overt sense of camaraderie. Um, And Selena Joy, I think, would be a much more complex and conflicted character. Yeah. uh, similar to Defiance and uh, David oh, yeah. Lee Murray's character. Oh, that I love that show so much. I know, we're going to talk about that. In we're going to talk about episode. that and immigration and how that plays out. Oh, shit, that's a great theme for that. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, so she would be a much more conflicted and much more interesting character. Um, and then June would be, would I think be a lot more like Dutch, really, would be like more of a leader. June would be a lot more like Dutch, would be like more of a leader, I think, and like more self-aware and like just happier in general, or at least having more agency. Right, right. She would be taking charge more. Right. I mean, the thing about a lot of B-level shows is that you also get characters that are deeply traumatized, but are somewhat, at least somewhat competent. And it doesn't dwell in their trauma, it dwells on how they get over that trauma. Yeah, exactly. Um, Dutch is super com- super traumatized by her terrible relationship with her father, who has trained her to be an assassin, and then, you know, all that other stuff. Uh, but the show is really about how she's getting over it, not about dwelling on how she, you know, it was bad. Yeah, you should not train your children to be assassins and then murder their fiancé. I mean... <laughs> I, I'm glad we all got this message. <laughs> if I ever have kids, I'll be sure to not do that. <laughs> Um, yeah, one of the things that happens, I think, on prestige shows is that characters are never um, allowed to be friends. They can't have positive relationships. They can't have good organizations. And the things we see on B-level shows, like you know, both Stargate and SG-1, is that it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, the team works well together. They respect each other. Um, this time for caramel is amazing. We're eating these cream puffs, and they're so good. Oh, my God. They're so oh, good. my God. They're incredible cream puffs. Oh, my God. I've had so many of them, and they're so good. Um... And like, you know, um, all of the characters in Killjoys are on, you know, generally, you know, they're, they're on good terms with each other, despite, you know, various things that happen to them. And because you can't have that on prestige TV, because it's not as dramatic, it means that um, you're far more likely to have a functional, you know, resistance organization, even in case of something like The Handmaid's Tale. And what that means is you end up with this weird cult of hero worship where suddenly June is the chosen one that will lead the children to freedom in Canada. And it makes no sense. And it comes out as terrible and kind of racist against all of the people who help her who are not white. Now that you say that, that's literally what iZombie did in season five or slash five. Um, Oh my God, I'm going to sound like I'm... This is literally what happened. Um, uh, What's her name? 
Liv. Liv. Um, Liv actually, Liv of course is a is a white woman placed by Rose McIntyre, who's actually a very good actress. Um, I mean, it's really incredible. Yeah. And she, um, uh, but there's this, but you know, Seattle becomes walled off because of the zombies, and then there's this black woman renegade who right. runs this like operation um, of children of, of like. Oh, oh! Is she children smuggling out. children out of captivity into the freelands? Yes, exactly. Or, or, or conversely, smuggling in some children right. who would not survive without being zombies. Right, right, they right. Have, like some kind of sure, disease. sure. Um, so very humanistic. So she gets murdered like two episodes into her right. introduction, and then Liv, this white woman, has to take over the organization and is their social, their prime social media figure. Like uh-huh. she releases all these like videos of herself. So like the Underground Railroad was really cool, but you know, it'd be cooler if it was white people. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like she literally becomes the chosen one. Great <laughs> in the, like these videos. So like everything that you're saying is exactly what they did. <laughs> yeah, don't do that on your show. <laughs> <laughs> Although I really love iZombie in other ways. I think it's 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 a really fun, sunny, lovely show. But yeah, that part of it is super racist. We're so far off topic right now. Okay, okay, okay. I'm sorry. Uh, it's all good. I think we're gonna have to cut a lot of this, it's fine. Um Yeah. Um uh yeah, so um this is the first episode of our podcast and um I don't know if it's the best, but um, we believe that, much like Steve Jobs, we believe that Willardus ship, and I ship Anil and Kendry, and I got to talk about that ship, and that makes me happy. Who would you, who would you say you ship, Ken- you ship Priya? Um, oh my is, it, is it Carter and what's his name, the blonde guy? <laughs> Carter and, and O'Neill. Or oh, totally. Honestly, I ship them so hard that that ship is just a given. Uh, but yes, I, I very, very, very much ship them. I think I also really ship Dutch and Davin. Yeah, actually. I can buy that ship. Um, like, yes, please and thank you. I can see it working. Like, she already is friends with his brother, so like, <laughs> you know it's gonna work out. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely the foundation of their relationship. <laughs> I, I imagine the hot sex helps. <laughs> Alright, it's good talking to you everyone. Uh, We're almost out of champagne, so see you next time. Alright, see you next time.